So please turn to 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 to 5, we're going to be reading. Please stand for the reading of God's word. Therefore I urge elders among you, as your fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, and one who is also a fellow partaker of the glory that is to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight not under compulsion, but voluntarily, according to the will of God, and not with greed, but with eagerness, nor yet as domineering over those assigned to your care, but by proving to be examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. You younger men likewise be subject to your elders, and all of you clothe yourself with humility toward one another, because God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. We bless you, Father, for this portion of your word, and we ask that you would enlighten our minds and give us grace to uh, learn from these verses what we as a church need to learn, and that you would raise the men in our midst that will serve as elders of this flock. For your namesake, for your glory we pray. Amen. Please be seated. For the past few weeks, we've been looking at the subject of elders, the office of elders. Peter has been addressing them not as, his, as their superior, rather, but as a fellow elder. Last week, we saw that the spirit of Jezebel is the zeitgeist, the defining spirit of our culture, which in a nutshell seeks to do away with male headship. As a church, we need to be aware of this trend. As a church, we need to constantly be on guard against this spirit. It infiltrates homes, it infiltrates our thinking, it infiltrates the church, and we capitulate to this spirit. The feminist ideology is against male headship. The BLM movement is against male headship. The LGBTQ ideology is very much against male headship. Male headship in our culture is systematically and incessantly under attack. It has been for decades. Sadly, many pastors have capitulated to the spirit of Jezebel. Yet, male headship is biblical and stands true. Male headship is to be taught and supported, both in the home as well as in the church. If we don't, we will pay a dear price for our mistake. We will see the falling apart of the home, as we are seeing it today in the Western world in particular, the falling apart of a society, the unraveling of a church, the evangelical church, known as the Big Eva, which stands for evangelicalism, Big Eva is no longer the church it once was. Sad. You can look at the different messages, the different churches, the different platforms, and you will see how the evangelical church is sliding and spiraling downward, further and further away from the very foundations uh, we once had. Um, if we don't believe in male headship, we're saying that, yes, we believe in the inspiration of Scripture, but in actuality, we don't believe in the inerrancy of Scripture. We don't believe in the sufficiency of Scripture for all areas of life. Therefore, as we saw last week, the office of elder is reserved for qualified 
men. In the New Testament church, women served in a myriad of ways. Prophesying, praying, leading, teaching women, helping the needy. They served as deacons. They opened their homes as churches. They financially supported ministries. They were gifted and supported the work of the apostles. But never do we see a woman serving as an elder or expositing scriptures before the congregation. Never. Today we are going to stop to consider further the office of elders as defined by verse 2. Shepherd the flock of God among you. Shepherd the flock of God among you. Elders are called to take care of God's flock as under-shepherds. Elders carry out this task in three ways, according to Peter. First, by keeping in mind the centrality of the cross. They were celebrating Holy Communion. We are remembering the cross. It is easy to forget, to ignore the cross. Not just as an emblem, as some kind of icon. We could have it on our home. My mother, before coming to Christ, had the cross in every room of her house. So you can think, you would say, yes, she valued the cross. She did not understand the cross. She had no clue what the cross meant. And many Christians today are the same. Some wear a cross around their neck. Some have it tattooed on their arms. There are stars and celebrities that carry crosses that have them on their legs, tattooed, they have it on their ears, they have it everywhere. But the message of the cross, as shown by Scripture, is little to nothing understood. And Peter wants to make sure by saying these words in verse 1, because this is his platform. This is on the basis on which he approaches the elders. He doesn't approach the elders on the, fact by the, on the basis that he's older than them, or that he was... One of the twelve. He doesn't approach them that way. This is what he says. Verse 1. A witness of the sufferings of Christ. Why does he mention that? Why does he mention this now? Why doesn't he mention, doesn't he mention it before? He doesn't do that. He says at this point, I witnessed the sufferings of Christ. I, a fellow elder, want to remind you of the centrality of the cross. An elder must daily live a cross-focused life. I remember when the Lord first impacted me on the message, on the value, on the beauty of the cross. It was through hymns. When I survey the wondrous cross. All these hymns about the cross... I started to memorize them because the more I memorized, the more I, saw, I, saw, I felt myself being healed. I was in Sicily when I started to memorize these hymns. I had never heard them before. In the church where I grew up, these hymns were not sung as often. But there I was thousands of miles away from Canada in a small town in Sicily, and I had this hymnal with me. I'm not sure who gave it to me. English hymnal. And I started looking at these songs, and I started remembering the melody, and I started memorizing the words. As I, as I read the words, tears would flow. The Lord showed me how important 
the cross was. The cross, does it move us? Does it impact us? Paul, Peter says, I'm a witness of the sufferings of Christ. Read Paul's letters, and you'll see he never speaks of Christ's miracles. Have you ever noticed that? Paul never speaks about the miracles of Christ. Not once. Paul stresses the cross over and over. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 2, verse 2, he says, For I determined to know nothing among you. Now, who does he say this to? Corinthians. What did the Corinthians love more than anything else? The power, miracles, manifestations. They love this stuff. They went after this stuff. And the gift of tongues was the first gift of importance for the Corinthian church. But when Paul writes about tongues, he takes the gift and he places it last. Last. But the one thing he places first, he goes, notice, I determined, I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and what? And him crucified. What he did was he took the attention of the church and riveted the attention on the cross. He was determined because he saw that they were sliding off track. There's only one path for the church. It's the path of the cross. Paul's ministry, Peter's ministry, centered around the cross. Ignore the cross, minimize the cross, decentralize the cross, alter the message of the cross, you have nothing. Listen to ministers today and just wait for them to speak about the cross. Many of them go through weeks and weeks never speaking about the cross. How can that be? If we don't speak about the cross, if we don't sing about the cross, if we don't center around the cross, you have a philosophy, you have words, you have a show, you have a motivational talk, you have nothing. And the elder, more than anyone else in the church, must live a cross-centered life. His focus must be on the cross. Constantly. Constantly. He wakes up and he thinks about the cross. He's going through the day and he's thinking about the cross. The message of the cross. The cross. And that message in the word of God is called the gospel. Read Paul's letter and the word gospel, which means good news in Greek, comes up over and over and over. It was Paul's favorite word, the gospel. And the gospel, in a nutshell, is this. God, in his infinite mercy, makes his son the object of his wrath so that you and I, sinners who deserve death, who deserve hell, could be made children of God, could be welcomed at his table, not because we are good, but because he is good. Not because we deserve it, because he alone deserves to be at that table. Not even angels. That's why angels are flabbergasted. As Peter writes, he says, they look intently into this whole plan of redemption. And they're still studying it because it has no end. The message of the gospel is impossible to plummet. Impossible to comprehend in its fullness. Throughout eternity, 
We're going to keep discovering the gospel, the centrality of the cross. He will be the only one in heaven with wounds, not you and I. We won't remember any wounds. We will not talk about our hurts. We will only talk about his wounds and what they accomplished for us. The cross, it's everything. And if it's not, I pray that it does become everything for you. The cross says that God made a way for vile sinners to become children of God. Often I'm asked this question, is Christianity the only way? It sounds so narrow, so exclusive. Certainly God is much more merciful than that. Certainly he will allow anyone who's never heard about the cross, who's never welcomed the message of the gospel, who's never said yes to Jesus as Savior, certainly he will welcome them as well. Jesus says it very clearly. No one, no one comes to the Father but through me. And what does it mean to come through me? It means to come through the death and the resurrection of the Savior, Jesus Christ. That's what it means. If I am lifted up, I will draw all men. How was Jesus lifted up? He was lifted up on a cross. I've asked this question many, many times to people who say they believe in God. Why did Jesus die? They come up with a myriad, a myriad of answers and never the right one. Never. Because when you understand why he died, then you understand Peter's words. I witnessed the sufferings of my Savior. I understood that God took his holy son and crushed him so that he could welcome me as his child. That's the message of the elders. That's the message of the church. There is no other message. And either we have it or we have nothing. I'm a witness, Peter says, of this glorious plan. I saw it firsthand. I understood only after. I thought he had come to deliver Israel. I was going to be the minister of finance. I don't know what he wanted to be. Who knows? I wanted to be some big cheese with Jesus as king. That's not why he came. That's not why he came. And that's not why he called me. For Peter, the cross was first and front in his life. The elder must understand this, must stress it. It's not about doing things right. You can exposit scripture correctly and you could overlook the cross over and over. It's not, it's poor exposition. The cross is central. And the people of God must see in the elder, this man loves Jesus and loves the message of Christ crucified. He loves it and he teaches it and he drives it. They must see that. They don't see that. You're missing that is on death of being an elder. So first, the elder keeps in mind the centrality of the cross. Secondly, he keeps in mind who the flock belongs to, who the church belongs to. Shepherd the flock of God among you. Elders are under shepherds. The flock does not belong to the elders. 
Never. Elders serve the chief shepherd, the owner of the flock, and ultimately will answer to him. Shepherding is a word with pejorative overtones. My uncle was a shepherd, and he would often tell me that the work of a shepherd is perhaps the most thankless and the most difficult task on the face of the earth. He did everything not to be a shepherd. No shepherd will say, I love to be a shepherd. If you find such a shepherd, he doesn't know what he's talking about. A true shepherd will not love to be shepherding. I'm talking about a true shepherd of flock, of sheep. And it's the same for the elders. As a shepherd, my uncle would often sleep out in the open regardless of the weather. Rain, wind, cold. He was there with the sheep, shivering. He would, be, he would become very intimate with them. A shepherd smells like sheep. Can't tell the difference. There's no, no such thing as a clean-smelling shepherd. Nothing. And when we consider this aspect of a shepherd, it is surprising that Jesus would call himself a shepherd. It's understandable to see Jesus as king, as lord, as God, as ruler, these are majestic titles. The creator of the universe. These are all true. But why would Jesus say these words about himself? In John 10, 11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Why would he say that about himself? Why would he call himself the good shepherd? Today, that would be like me saying, I am the good garbage collector. Same thing. I'm the good garbage collector. See, we look at the word shepherd and say, oh, what a beautiful word. What a beautiful image of Jesus with the staff going down the valley with his flock. <laughs> we don't understand. When he said those words, everybody, eh? eh? What, what, what's he saying here? No, no, no. You're the king. The disciples, I'm sure, the 12 were saying, no, no, you're the king. You're the miracle worker. You're the man who walks on water. You raise the dead. I'm the good shepherd. No one can say, this is my flock. No one. Only Christ can do that. No elder should say that. Paul, speaking to the elders of Ephesus, explains why this is so in Acts chapter 20. In verse 28, he says this, Be on guard for yourselves. Be careful, elders. You don't own the flock. That's what he's saying. Be careful. Notice his words. For all the flock. Be careful. Be on guard. Among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. So you are among, but you oversee. To shepherd the church of God, which he purchased. He purchased, purchased with his own blood. There's so much in this verse. God's people are Christ's flock. That's why Jesus said to the Father, you have given them to me in John 17. Christ purchased his flock with his blood. 
And through his sacrifice on the cross, lost sinners became his property. Have you ever said to God, I am your property? Have you ever said those words? When you pray, I am yours. You know what Paul called himself? I'm a bond slave. More than property. I am your slave. I have no will of my own. That's the elder. The church is Christ's property, and the elders are bond slaves. No pastor, no elder can say, these are my members. It's disturbing every time I hear pastors say these words, my church, my people, my, my uh, members, constantly saying these words, constantly. My, my, my. I've often been asked, John, how is your church going? And I answer this way, my church? I don't have one. I answer that way. Some of you have heard me say that. Christ alone is the good shepherd who did the unthinkable for his flock. He gave up his life for the sheep. No pastor, no elder, no angel, no Moses, no Samuel, no Daniel. No one did that. Only Jesus Christ. He purchased a filthy and lost flock with his death on the cross. And then he cleansed them and he cleans them. To make them a bride fit for the Lord. Jesus is the chief shepherd, as Peter says in verse 4. The ultimate shepherd. And as elders, we're simply other shepherds who carry out his will as explained and delineated in the manual, the Bible. We follow his instructions, his example as a chief shepherd by loving the flock and serving the flock laying down our lives for the flock, but for his sake. His sake. When an elder or pastor understands this, it takes a lot of pressure off his back. For years, I struggled with this very point. I felt the weight of the church on my shoulders so often, my wife knows, I felt crushed because I knew I had to answer to the Lord for this flock. And I'd say, Lord, I can't do it. The very thought that some are weak and some are faltering and some are not reading scriptures and some are not praying and some are sinning and some, I don't, I can't. How am I supposed to do this? I'd stay up at night. That's what an elder does. He struggles with all these thoughts because he loves the church. And then I understood one day that it's not my flock. I'm an under-shepherd. I'm supposed to be faithful in my calling. Yes, it hurts when I see members fall off and get distracted and lose interest in God's word and don't want to pray and, and, be, and become more taken up with the things of this world. Yes, it's sad. So what we do is we intercede, we pray, we we come together week after week and pray and intercede on a daily basis, praying for the church. But at the end, every sheep is responsible to the shepherd. All that is required of the elders is that he shepherds the flock. 
and that he remembers the flock belongs to Christ. I thought the flock belonged to me in that sense. I had a sense of ownership because I felt every people were falling and I felt as though I was falling. And there is that sense. There's, I don't think an elder can ever get away from that. That kind of ownership is fine. It's when we feel that the church belongs to me and they have to do what I say. That's wrong. So first, the elder must keep in mind the centrality of the cross. And secondly, he needs to keep in mind who owns the flock, Jesus Christ, because he purchased it with his death on the cross. We're here to remember, remember exactly that. And third, the elders need to keep in mind their primary role as elders, their primary role. Shepherd the flock of God among you. Elders are not managers. They're not businessmen. They may run a business, but the heart of an elder is completely different. He's not a businessman in the church. Though their task may include some managing, elders are called to oversee the spiritual health of the flock. And they're not to be taken up with administrative issues. Though they are important, but they're not to be taken up with that. An elder's heart is bent. It's inclined on seeking the spiritual well-being of the flock. Every other issue regarding church is secondary. They're important, but they're secondary. And we made that decision when it comes to the board. Because it's transitioning from a board administration to an elders board. And therefore, we are more geared and gearing ourselves to the well-being. What is necessary to make the church healthy? How can we make the church more aware of its spiritual condition? How can we get the church to pray more? How can we get the church to love the Lord more? That's our heart. That's an elder's heart over and over. He pushes for that. And when members falter and are weak, the the elder cares. He calls. He's concerned. Now, there are members that do that too. Thank God there are members because it's not simply the elders work alone, but the elders has the oversight. And he shows the example by being the first this way. And Jesus is the one who exemplified this kind of heart. And the second thing about an elder is that he's not concerned about how others see him. He's not worried about how his image is. We have pastors today that care about being tattooed because they want to relate to those in the pew. They come to the pew, to the pulpit with torn jeans as if that's going to make them closer. Really? A sheep knows when the elder loves the flock. It's not my torn jeans that's going to tell you I love you. It's not my tattoo that says I'm one with you. It's not my piercings. That's what they do today. There's like a a wave of this happening amongst pastors. Jesus exemplified this perfectly. And he's our example. Being a shepherd is not prestigious at all. The elders must remember this over and over. I was telling Alessandro just before the gathering, that he's meeting with the Italian speaking in, uh, in the conference room. I was telling him how the Lord brought me to Sicily for one particular reason. 
Because everyone would ask, why would they send a Canadian to the hottest spot in Italy? It was like Africa heat. What was the Lord's doing? God sovereignly led the brethren to ask me to go there. And I wasn't going to say no. I'm a bond servant. I say, brothers, wherever you send me. Boy, did I regret it. The first day, 45 degrees. That was part of the bad experience. The Lord brought me to Sicily to humble me and to remind me that I'm simply a shepherd. That's all you are, John. Doesn't matter how the others appreciate you. Doesn't matter how much they say to you, oh, we never heard a message like yours, John. You're an amazing preacher. It doesn't matter, John. You are a shepherd. You are a shepherd. Now, yes, I, I understand that I'm a shepherd. No, I didn't understand. I didn't. It's taken me years to understand. I'm a shepherd. That's it. I'm a shepherd. An elder takes Christ seriously, his calling seriously, the word of God seriously, but not himself seriously. An elder has no right to be offended. No right whatsoever. He is an unworthy servant, serving the flock of Christ for the sake of Christ. I've often said this to you, that shepherds had little value in the days of Jesus. They still do, by the way, wherever parts of the world you would go to and speak to a shepherd, they're insignificant. They're seen as next to nothing. They were totally despised by society at large. Surprising that Jesus would call himself the good shepherd. Because shepherds were disdained, even though very much needed. Jesus was not repulsed by the sin of the flock, by the stench of our sin. He wasn't. He became one with us. He willingly joined himself with us, yet never sinned. Took on himself our sins. And thus showed us how much he loved the flock. And that's the love that God is nurturing in every elder. The elder has Christ as his example. An elder must say repeatedly to himself, I will do whatever it takes to ensure that God's people know Christ's undying love and his desire for their holiness. Not that only that he loves you, but that God has a desire for us. He desires us to be holy. That's why he loved us, to make himself a people that are cleansed. The shepherd is not concerned about his image. He's not concerned about getting recognition, getting thanks. Many times, I would go out of my way, my wife knows, and there would be no recognition at the end of that period. I would lay my life down for others, and people wouldn't thank me. The Lord had to kill that desire to be thanked. He had to crush it in me. And he crushed it. He crushed it over and over. Listen to the words of Jesus to Peter, who had grandiose ideas about himself when it came to being an apostle of Jesus Christ. After his death and resurrection, Jesus prepared breakfast on the beach. An unusual breakfast made up of fish. And then after breakfast, Jesus turns to Peter and says these words 
In John 21, verse 15, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Not more than the fish, but more than the other disciples. He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. So the yes, Lord, there meant, yeah, I think I love you more than them. And what does Jesus say? Tend my lambs. And he said to him again, a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. But he's more careful now. He's a little more hesitant to answer because the words are less. And then Jesus said to him, shepherd, shepherd. That's what I want you to do, Peter. I want you to shepherd. I don't want you to be a warrior. I don't want you to be first. I don't want you to be ahead of everyone else. I don't want you to be cocky, Peter. I want you to be a shepherd, in undignified. Lower yourself, humble yourself, shepherd. And then he said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was hurt. The real word here is disturbed. Because he had said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Now that was the right answer. I'll do whatever you want me to do. I'll do whatever you want me to do. You want me to shepherd the flock? I'll shepherd the flock. I'll be a, an under-shepherd like everyone else. I'm not first. I'm not the best. I'm not going to be the last to stand against everyone and with my strength and power, I'm going to show everyone what it means to be part of the kingdom. No, no. I'm going to lay down my life. You see, no one wanted to be a shepherd in those days. Had Jesus said to him, Peter, I want you to fight for me. Peter said, that's what I'm here for. Where's my sword? I want you to lead, Peter. Peter said, yes, of course. I'm first. I'm the oldest here in the bunch. I'll lead. And he said to him, I want you to show by your example to be strong. Jesus didn't ask that. He's telling him, I want you to die. Die. Die, Peter. Be a shepherd. It's not about you. At the end, Lord, you know I love you. I'll shepherd I know this answer. You know why I know it? I've seen many commentaries on this. Many of them are just wrong. That's all Jesus was saying. It's like Jesus asking us today, John, be a garbage collector. That's how humiliating it was to be a shepherd. That's how undignified it was to be a shepherd. You're a nothing. And Peter accepts. So Peter had Jesus' words when he's speaking to the elders of these seven churches of Asia Minor. He had those words when he's telling them, shepherd the flock. I've done it. I've laid my life down. It's not prestigious. I said that while I was in Italy, um, the Lord humbled me many, many times. Many times. I had a wrong view of pastoring, a wrong view of what it meant to be in the ministry. It was very frustrating those first few years. And on one such occasion, 
It happened when I was visiting a church. I often got invitations to preach in different churches because, uh, I don't know, I was Canadian. So they'd say, let's have John. I remember walking into a church and uh, they had made uh, these posters and plastered the whole town. John de la Foresta from Canada. And for young people, that meant a cowboy was coming from Canada because it means, it means John of the Woods, basically. You know? And when they saw somebody like me coming in with no arrows, no guns, they just stood up, half the church, I kid you not, they stood up and walked out. That was humility, humbling. The Lord humbled me in so many ways. And um, I would get invited after the gathering. The, I don't want to use the word service because I'm trying to get the church away from that word. But anyways, and uh, we'd finish by 9 o'clock, 9 p.m. And then at 9.30, we had, a, we had supper. The pastor who would invite me did not want me to leave. It's very hard to leave uh, without eating at the home of the person who invites you. So by the time supper was over, and their supper are quite elaborate, it was midnight. So I'd be driving with my little 500 on these dark serpentine roads. There were back roads. They weren't the highways of Italy. They were called superstrada. One lane, pitch dark, except for my flickering lights from a Fiat 500. And oftentimes, I did go off the road. God mysteriously and miraculously brought me back on because it was very dangerous. And uh, I was driving back, and, you know, it's pitch black, literally. And I see this blinding light, the size, I would say the size of a... Um, a massive disc, like a, like a TV dish, right? That size. Blinding. And I came to a screeching halt. I said, what is that? I thought UFOs had landed. Literally, I said, what is this? And then these individuals come out of nowhere with machine guns. And they come towards me. And, and I wasn't scared for some reason. I should have been, but I wasn't. And I recognized them after a while, after my eyes adjusted to the light. I lowered my little window, you know, the Fiat 500. The window was this big. I said, I said, they were carabinieris. Yes, officers, how can I help you? Quiet, we ask the questions here. Okay. So I stayed quiet. He says, where are you coming from? I said, well, I'm coming from church. Church? Do you realize what time it is? Yes, it's close to one o'clock. I'm coming from church. Why at this time? Well, I'm a pastor. They just broke out in laughter, pointing their guns. I was afraid they were going to start shooting because out of, out of their literally laughing, you're a pastor. Ha, ha, ha. I said, okay, go. Go home. Lord, that happened to me over and over. When they found out that I was a pastor, they're, it's just a way of saying, ah, oh, you're nothing. You die to self. And the Lord will humble elders over and over to remind them you're an under-shepherd. After having done all that you're called to do, after having done everything the Lord has asked you to do, 
at the end, you come before him, you are an unworthy servant. That's all. That's all. May the Lord give us grace to raise men like that at LCF. Men who have in mind the centrality of the cross, who keep in mind that the flock belongs to God and that all that we are are under-shepherds. Under-shepherds, no prestige. I never use the word reverend. I am ordained. I only use it when I speak to the government. Never. I'm always under, I don't understand pastors using the word reverend everywhere. I don't get it. I keep telling you, do not call me Pastor John. I know I'm a pastor. I know that quite well. Not because you call me a pastor, because the Lord has called me to this arduous work. And it's an honor to serve the Church of Christ. And these are the men that God is raising up here, uh, here at LCF. Men who do not care about their titles, their prestige, their honor, but who care about the name of Christ, so that the church is loved, so they lay their lives down for the church, and the church continues to grow in the likeness of Christ until we see him face to face. My joy and the joy of every elder here at LCF will be to be in God's presence and just to look around and to see that God saying, well done, John. When, well done, brothers. Well done, elders of LCF. Well done for laying down your life, for being faithful under shepherds. Please pray that God will grant that to us. Amen? Let us pray together. Father, thank you for the joy of sharing the word of God with your flock. Thank you for reminding us how the cross must be central. Lord, I pray that that would be so real in my life and that anyone who would come into contact with me would understand the centrality of the cross, of the message of the gospel. And to remember that the flock belongs to you. And lastly, that we are under shepherds who serve the chief shepherd, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, to whom we will give an account one day. Give us the grace, because it's an arduous task, and we need grace for it, Lord. Thank you for the times that you humble us, because you love us. You only humble those you love. You would never waste time humbling Satan or demons. You only humble those that belong to you. So thank you for that, because whenever you humble us, it is always for our good. Thank you, Lord, for showing us your humility, the price you paid, the extent you went to for our sake, to the glory of God the Father. We are thankful that this evening, this day rather, we can remember the cross by celebrating Holy Communion. What a privilege and what an honor. Anyone here, Lord, who doesn't know you, draw them to yourself. Draw them to yourself, please. I pray that my weaknesses and my shortcomings would not 
have hindered someone from coming to you. Only you can do this wonderful work of drawing and regenerating. Do it once again for the name of Christ, your Son, Father. Glorify him in our midst, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.